For many people around the world in this time of COVID-19, life has become fraught, unbalanced, and discomforting. Moreover, for meditators, particularly those whose heart is connected to the Dhamma and the Golden Land, it is very hard to get information on how the pandemic is affecting things here. We wondered how we could do our part to help brighten people's day just a bit and provide that information. So we changed our normal run of interviews to bring you this new series, which examines how the coronavirus is specifically affecting monasteries across Myanmar and meditators around the world. Continue to check the Insight Myanmar podcast feed for upcoming episodes related to this topic. We know this is a challenging time for many out there and hope all our listeners are staying physically safe and mentally sound. and don't do really aggressive containment and mitigation, the number could go way up, many, many millions. Uh, to be isolating patients, emphasizing social distancing. Wuhan, uh, China's confirmed the coronavirus outbreak is now a pandemic. That COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Italy, one of the worst affected countries. And business supply chains are being disrupted around the globe. This combination of people being It's confirmed the coronavirus outbreak is now a pandemic. We will realize see an opportunity in this situation. Please make your compassion and kindness to the people. You have done we are physical all protecting. Due to COVID-19, the Marie become more support conscious. They can certainly can use this time to to grow in dumb. Kick out your negative minds. People can become closer to each other. Be sending Mitra to all over the world, all over the universe. See uh, change for sure. Brightest and less Work hard more and more for sending loving kindness. People can learn how to help each other, how to love, seeing new horizons of life. We do see some positive aspects of this corona crisis in the world. We see that, in a sense, that brings people also closer together. People getting closer together and watching out for each other. We have more time for our families, for the community, and time to meditate. Please make your compassion and loving kindness. It was kind of actually very warm and very, very kind of death. Stabilize the heart. This reminder of this uncertainty of life, when we don't know, see what we can do and what we cannot do, what we can accomplish and what we cannot. Remember peace in the face of suffering. Should I stay or should I go? Who would have thought that The Clash's 1982 hit would be the perfect soundtrack for a Dhamma podcast episode? Yet the refrain so aptly characterizes the decision faced by today's guests, foreign expats, meditators, and former monastics, that it ends up being a seamless fit. 
The speakers you are about to hear were in Myanmar trying to figure out what to do and where to go as the pandemic became more serious. While all eventually made the choice to return home, in some cases catching what may well have been the last flight out, they were faced with stressful and confusing circumstances with urgent decisions that had to be made quickly and without the advantage of knowing all the facts ahead of time. Our first two speakers are American expats who have been living and working in Myanmar, one in Yangon and the other in Mandalay, and whose initial interest in going to the country was largely motivated by the possibility of spending their free time pursuing Dhamma practice. The similarity running through their tales is remarkable. They talk of city life that was at first barely affected by the growing pandemic. Then, as things got more serious, they initially resisted the idea of abandoning their current home, but soon realized that staying there was no longer tenable. There followed a chaotic last week full of chaotic travel plans, hurried goodbyes, and finally, a tearful departure from a rich Dhammic environment they had come to appreciate so deeply. Upon landing back in the U.S., they both struggled with a culture that was much more materialistic than the country they'd left, and a society seemingly bereft of Dhamma. While they tried to apply the meditative tools they'd learned to help themselves get adjusted to life back in America, it was not a smooth transition, and they had a difficult time getting their meditation back on track. Speaking honestly and vulnerably, both left off the interview not totally sure what was next in store for them. The two other speakers, in contrast, hadn't gone to Myanmar for work opportunities, but solely for extended Dhamma practice. An Australian and an American, they had both formerly worn monk's robes but were now lay yogis. Unlike the previous two guests, they did not have an open-ended stay nor a home in the Golden Land and had a definite return ticket in hand. So their song's refrain was more like, should I try to stay on or just go home? Both were in the midst of intensive practice while on a monastery retreat when the pandemic broke and had to rely on delayed and intermittent updates on the severity of the situation before their travel plans materialized. One of them had to weather a debilitating illness at the one time you really don't want to be sick, while the other had to cut short a pilgrimage because foreigners were no longer being accepted at Burmese monasteries, and he had to scramble to move up his return flight. Both yogis had to quarantine themselves when they got back, one at his Portland apartment and the other at his childhood bedroom in his parents' home in Sydney. As they settled back into life in their home countries, both maintained their strong Dhamma practice, with an emphasis on generating compassion for others. One felt a deep sense of interconnectedness with others through contemplating anatta, non-self, and the other began guiding and helping meditators dealing with fears and worries bubbling up due to the pandemic on Zoom sessions. In their own way, these four different tales convey an overarching Dhamma theme, the unpredictability of life. Each of them face significant instability and disruption, losing jobs or having to forego plans, with Burmese monasteries closing their doors, and all this complicated by worried parents pleading for an imminent return. As individuals, they relate to this unpredictability in their own ways. One meditator speaks of previous disruptions in life, somewhat preparing them for this one, while another observes that the scale of the disruption caused by the pandemic is a completely new and unsettling experience for many Westerners, meditators included. This theme of the inherent instability of life highlights the truth that we have nothing more valuable to depend on than our own practice. It also highlights a sense of urgency in prioritizing what matters most in life. And after all, what matters more than taking time to observe the mind and come out of suffering? In other words, moments of crisis simplify and affirm what's truly important and how to make best use of our time, which is our meditation practice. This meditation practice provides balance, strength, insight, and compassion. 
And the guests on this episode stress not only the value of practice, but the sense of urgency for practice. Though each one's story is different in many details, they all point in their own way towards this sense of importance and urgency in all of our practice. Given this sense of urgency, let's get right onto our guests so that you can hear from them in their own words. May their experiences light up your own sense of urgency to practice during this unusual period. The next speaker, Jose Molina, is an American expat and meditator who has been in Myanmar for several years. He had planned to stay in Yangon and wait out the pandemic, but after a change of mind, decided to head back to the U.S. on one of the last flights out. He recorded this from his home in New England. I lived in Yangon for two and a half years, actually almost to the day, which is a strange coincidence. And as the coronavirus started gaining a steam around the world and causing shutdowns and quarantines in different countries, my experience of it was mostly that this seemed like some sort of hysterical paranoia uh, on the part of other nations, um, because in Myanmar, nothing had happened. Uh, literally nothing. Um, no precautions, no shutdown of anything. Life was quite normal. And of course, you'd hear from family and friends at home in the States, I'm American, or even the, the, through my, own, my other friends in Yangon from you know, what things were like in their home countries in Australia, uh, Britain, Canada, India, what have you, you know, mostly what you would hear from people, you know, expats from developed countries were just shocking um, and totally incompatible with, you know, our lived reality in Yangon. You know, the things that we've all come to know, of course, you know, lockdowns, sheltering in place, all of these things that have become, you know, common experiences for people. Um, we're just nowhere to be found in Yangon. Like I, I, business was just continuing completely as usual in my life and the lives of all my friends. In fact, I can recall one specific thing that did happen maybe a couple of weeks before I ended up leaving, which is that my squash sports club closed down by order of the government. All the, um, the sports facilities in the Chakasan sports ground were closed and I was you know, completely irate about this because this was like the only impact that it was having. And, you know, obviously this sounds like laughable or ridiculous uh, or possibly offensive to people in uh, countries that, you know, like Spanish people or whatever who are stuck in their apartments for, you know, weeks on end already at that point, you know, that uh, I was beside myself that the sports club was unavailable. But that was the only thing, you know, so it seemed really out of place. I was like, why would you shut this down? There's no impact on anything, you know, anywhere else. Why can't I just go play squash after work? This is ridiculous. In fact, even to underscore the point, I went to Chiang Mai for a, a, like a long weekend uh, just prior to leaving Yangon, like a, a few weeks before. I mean, I traveled uh, on a flight to Thailand. Flight was quite full. Uh, Chiang Mai itself, which is a touristy area, was certainly very quiet by Chiang Mai standards. But it, it was not a ghost town. I mean, it was it was heavily impacted. I don't want to undersell it, but but certainly you didn't feel like I didn't feel like oh I was being a fool marching into 
you know, a quarantine zone with no regard for my safety. Uh, what it really seemed like was that this winter season was ending and the tourists were filtering out of Chiang Mai anyway. And this was somewhat exacerbated by a bit of a scare. And so prices were low and that was agreeable for me. I mean, <laughs> this this was the experience. And if anyone is listening to this in the developed world, it, it must sound like I was on a different planet. Um, but that's certainly what it felt like. Uh, anyway, how I came to leave Myanmar was despite this you know, appearance that everything was totally fine in mid-March, sort of late March, I guess, actually, the impact was encroaching, you know, because of business, you know, projects were slowing down because, you know, technical experts could not fly from Europe or wherever they were coming in from. Projects, uh, clients were starting to put their, um, their own employees travel on hold and, and shut down projects for indeterminate amounts of time. And so, I mean, I'm a consultant, so that started to impact us. And again, for the way that we were living, this seemed like, boy, this is a great headache. Why are all these people doing this? This is very stupid. We're just, we're just marching on here. There's nothing restricting our ability to implement our projects. This is a real shame that these other countries are going bananas like this. And so uh, this was still the status. And then in one week in March, things began to change very, very quickly. The, as I recall, the Australian and British embassies both put out very strongly worded statements to their citizens that if they uh, wanted to return to their home countries, they should do so very soon because travel was going to become very difficult. And basically, as I experienced it, Essentially, every Australian and British person in Yangon left in, you know, 72 hours. They were, like, all gone. Hundreds, thousands, I don't know, like, a lot just disappeared. And this was the big sea change. This is where everyone started to think, like, hold on a second. Maybe things are really going to change here, too, like they have changed everywhere else. And so, uh, in short order, three days, three days on Thursday morning, uh, it became clear that uh, my job was not really guaranteed to last in an indefinite work stoppage. And so I basically negotiated uh, a severance package and liquidated all of my assets. I just gave away as much as I could to uh, colleagues and friends and anything they didn't want basically went to the security man at my house. And on early on Sunday morning, I was on a plane back to the U.S., but, you know, still, you know, when I left Yangon, I, that was Saturday night. I went out with some friends to, uh, you know, have a bite to eat and uh, be social on uh, the Saturday night. So really, you know, even 12 hours before I left, I was still living in a world in which COVID was basically a complete abstraction, except for the fact that the shadow of it had cost me my job. But again, my lived reality was no change at all. Again, except for the uh, missing squash club. That was still the biggest problem, the biggest change in my day-to-day -day life. And then I arrived in the U.S., you know, a couple of days later to a, essentially like a completely different universe. So beginning in the time that I arrived in Myanmar, in uh, October of 2017, I was very fortunate to 
live very close to Chanmayikta Meditation Center, which is, for those people who don't know, Chanmay Seda is a very well-respected and well-established older Seda in, um, in Myanmar, and he has a number of centers, and then one of them is in Yangon City. And the although that uh, meditation center is mostly for Burmese people, they also have a small building for long-term foreign yogis. It has its own hall and uh, you know dormitory, whatever. And although I was not obviously a long-term retreatant, I was just a person living in the city. I went to the Sayadaw who seems to be the 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 guy who effectively uh, runs it, uh, operationalizes it on a day-to-day basis, who's Seda Usobita. And I explained my situation that I'm working in the city, but I would like I would like to sit and practice at the um, at the center whenever I could. And um, he agreed to that, and uh, he was he was very supportive and allowed me to do that. And so I went there most mornings before work for two and a half years, and then sometimes on the weekend and sometimes on the way home from work also. Um, I don't know, I'd say of the days that I spent in Yangon, I I don't know if the days that I was at uh, Chenmayek that were, were like 90% of my days, but maybe, I mean, it was pretty close. So um, that place was very dear to my heart. Uh, I think my practice really, really advanced there. Although it was a sort of strange experience because I wasn't very like immersed in the, in the, the center, you know, the center is mostly geared toward Burmese people. And like I said, long-term retreat. And so I was a bit of an odd duck there. I just sort of showed up, did my practice and left. And then, you know, occasionally donated meals. And then uh, there were some circumstances where a senior monk was, was traveling through and uh, would help me practice and learn some chanting and some things. So, I mean, I did, I did some things there, but mostly it was just a space that they, they allowed me to practice in more or less autonomously, I would say. And so, you know, I really grew to like that room. I would say that, uh, I'm more sentimental about the foreigners hall at Chanmayekta than I am about any other single thing in Myanmar, you know, by far, I'm very, very attached to that little hall. And, you know, that's, that's a, a testament to the supportive atmosphere that, the supporters of Chenmei Seydaw created there and, you know, that the Seydaw himself fostered that I I had such a great time there. So anyway, when I went to leave, the sort of last weekend I was bombing around town trying to do my bits and bobs before I left Saturday, I think, you know, I went there and I paid my respects to Seydaw Usobita, who, you know, for all intents and purposes in my life, Sobita was was the man there. You know, Chenmei himself I saw one time in two and a half years. He was basically sort of an abstraction, you know. But uh, Sobita was the guy who, you know, was uh, indulgent of my position and and uh, supportive of me practicing there, even though it was, you know, not the the part of the usual thing that that went on there. And of course, as we know, Burmese are quite fond of the usual thing. <laughs> And when I went to pay my respects to Sobita, I was, I actually felt very emotional and, and felt choked up and, 
sort of almost teary, which was, I mean, it's hard to explain, I guess, that like this was completely shocking experience to me. I was like, I did not see that coming at all. Because like I said, I, my practice did advance a lot, but but I never felt really connected to the center. It was kind of like my own personal thing that I just did there. But I came to see that the, you know, the generous spirit and um, the sort of silent support in the background of Sobita was, was very, very important to me. And so leaving that was uh, actually quite a heavy blow. And I think, you know, now being in the U.S., you know, I can see that having that sort of supportive practice atmosphere is really, really important and really valuable and and not, you know, something to just, you know, take for granted at all. So, yeah, that's why I think I was really, was pretty bummed about it. And just to contextualize this, I guess, for people, I am not overly sentimental about Myanmar as a whole, like, at all. But, you know, apparently I, I really, really love Jen Mayikta. <laughs> so now that I'm in the U.S., like a lot of people now in the COVID era, my life is quite unsettled. I am working remotely for a while, but, you know, I, I didn't have, uh, you know, a separate house to come back to in the U.S. So now I'm, uh, at a ripe old age um, at my mom's house. So, um, you know, I think most Westerners uh, do not view this as uh, a very positive experience to have. I mean, it's sort of positive, of course, to spend quality time. Like, I love my parents, but it's certainly not how uh, I was planning for my life to go. So, you know, with that context, which I think a lot of people you know, or sort of some sort of similar situation, or maybe they've lost their jobs, maybe they haven't moved places, but they've lost their jobs or whatever. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of unsettledness in the mind. And um, my sitting is really just kind of a disaster. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to, to sit. I mean, even to sit for an hour is like way harder than it was like a month or a month and a half ago. Like I get up a lot before the hour is over, which, you know, was essentially unheard of two months ago. So, yeah, I think there's just a sort of basic level of dis-ease that has really come to the surface, probably for, you know, everyone in this situation. But lately, I'd say within the last week, I'm getting a bit better. And I think and by getting better, I have like a specific meaning in mind, which is that I think I'm really starting to do better dealing with you know the like the inconstancy that surface like the unease you know the three characteristics that have arisen because I, I think that my two cents on this is that you know the process of developing one's practice i think is just you know, I view it sort of in the simplest terms sometimes as like just confronting the defilements on a, you know, sort of systematically from the, the coarsest, most superficial defilements, just, you know, down, 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 like keep digging and digging and digging 
until you know you can confront the bigger ones and and make your peace with the bigger ones and let the bigger ones go like this this is kind of the game to me that's how i conceptualize it sometimes and i think for people who are from developed countries who are in a a position you know with a good economic situation and good health and and things like this it's pretty easy to have your practice revolve around confronting small instances of, you know, unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, and and not self, right? Like, like I'd say, we don't think of it that way, but actually the stuff that we confront that are manifestations of these things is like pretty small fry on the day-to-day life, I'd say. And, um, you know, something like COVID really, really, to me, brings the Buddha's teachings like really to the front and center of like, you know, when the man says that all things are impermanent and, you know, there, there is no reliable refuge or shelter to be found in samsara. He really means that he doesn't mean like, Oh, unless you're rich or your health is good or your job is good or you have a trust fund or no, 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 no. Then, then this doesn't apply to you. You know, he really means that, the the danger of samsara is real and the extent to which your mind does not like it is real and you've really got to wrestle with that and so most of the time i think we just do small wrestling honestly and covid just puts a very very large opponent in the ring and it really you see how you struggle when when the rug is pulled out from under you um and so now this is all getting back to this now i'm getting to a point where like okay I understand that this is the fight now and I'm, I'm being deliberate about, look, my, my practice time isn't going to be really peaceful and great. And I'm not going to feel like, Oh, my concentration's really improving or whatever. Like what I'm going to feel like is this is going to be a one hour war because my mind is really agitated because like my whole world is topsy turvy, like everyone else. Like that's, the challenge that is in front of me now. And, and, you know, like in the practice, you don't get to choose. I don't think what is the appropriate development, you know, you, you have to deal with what comes up and like, this is, this is what's here now and you got to deal with it. So I'm trying to be more constructive now, but, um, but it, it's, it's been hard. I don't know because of all that stuff. And then I guess one last thing to add to that is it's also hard in the U S I think, because you're really on your own out here. Even though in Myanmar, like in a certain sense, I was on my own because I didn't have so many Dhamma friends in Yangon. I had some foreign Dhamma friends, but, you know, my practice was still mostly me because, um, you know, like I'm not Burmese, like I, I was saying before. So, you know, it's kind of on my own before, but there's a huge asterisk on that, which is, you know, I was in a very, very Dhamma centric environment where of course, you see, you know, monks and nuns on the street all the time. You almost can't go five meters without seeing another pagoda or, you know, small shrine on the street or whatever. So the importance um, and value of the triple gem is just always, always present in Myanmar. And I think that does a lot to reinforce your practice. And here, just know, you know, like, there's really not much or, or any, I mean, where I am, basically none, 
no support or like social cues that make you think, you know, prioritizing a daily practice and keeping a daily practice and keeping the precepts is a good idea. You know, obviously in the US, uh, ideas about a good life are generally predicated on other things, you know, material satisfaction, you know, sensual pleasure, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, you know, trying to keep it up in the US without an atmosphere that is supportive of your goals and basically like an atmosphere that that reinforces that your goals are sane and good and are a fundamental part of living a good life, all those social cues and supports are just gone. And they're replaced with like, you know, you could just order something else on Amazon today. And so I'd say that that's an ongoing challenge and we'll see how that shakes up as I'm here longer. I wouldn't say that I've had any real like insights as a result of the COVID situation at the moment. But what I would say is that the COVID situation has sort of like redoubled my sense of urgency. Because one thing for me that's been really disappointing is that, you know, I took a job in Myanmar with the idea that ultimately I'd like to do some long-term retreat time in Myanmar, but I'm just in a, in a life position where I had to work for some time. But my plan was to work for a bit more and then go, you know, do whatever, like 45, 60 day retreat, however much I could, um, I could handle. I just took it for granted that that was going to be possible. And so, you know, I didn't quit my job or anything because in order to have retreat time because there was no urgency. I just thought I'm going to work. And then, uh, you know, when I have a situation where it seems like I can weather a small gap on my CV for two months or whatever, then, then I'll do my retreat time. And then I will have, uh, maximized my, my time in Myanmar. And then, you know, when COVID came and I, I left the country in 72 hours, you know, I was really blindsided by that. And I really think, you know, gives you some perspective on like, you can't take it for granted that you're just going to be able to do a retreat in Myanmar if you are an American, because in fact, Myanmar is on a different side of the planet from your home. And you know, when you're there, you just think, oh, I don't know, I'm here now. But actually in the big picture, it, it's possible, you know, for the, the winds of, of fate to just throw you very, very far away. And to me, that really reinforces some of the stuff that, you know, you, you hear in the Dhamma, stuff that the Buddha said, that again, I think if you're from a stable economic and social situation and health situation, some of that stuff doesn't really sink into you, you know, where the Buddha really, really reinforces that it is a very rare opportunity to be, you know, to be born as a human and to, and to then be a human that encounters the Dhamma. Like that is an enormously, enormously rare and valuable opportunity. But to me, I was like, I don't know, it's just the background of my life. Like I go to work, there's the monks and I'll get my retreat time soon enough. So now I really feel like I, I get this idea that like I just can't take good 
practice opportunities for granted. And when travel is possible again, I'm 100% going to a retreat. I do not care what is up with my job situation. Like I'm going to do a long-term retreat like at the, at the next chance I have. So that's one thing is it's definitely increased my sense of, of urgency and sort of like the sense of preciousness about like rare Dhamma opportunities. The second thing is that it's also sort of increased my sense of, uh, how to say it, like that I need to prioritize and value the Dhamma and sort of like fight for that, like against, you know, the natural stream of just coming back and being a normal American and just sort of easing into just doing the thing. Like even if America is kind of weird now, cause you like can't go out to have coffee or eat or anything. I mean, and some other level, it's still, you know, the society is still the same. The values of the society are the same. You know, the, the rhythm of life is, you know, at least here in a small town, it seems more the same than different to me because I just came back from Myanmar. So like the U.S. under lockdown still seems more like the U.S. not under lockdown to me than it does to Myanmar. So anyway, I'm feeling I'm feeling like I'm just back in the flow of being American. And I feel like a strong sense of determination that like that, like, no, I really have to, you know, uh, wrestle with my mind to keep prioritizing the Dhamma. So, so I'd say like those are two things that have come from COVID is, is a, a sense of urgency, like on a like personal sort of day-to-day level. And also like on a bigger picture level of like, I've just got to get myself back into more supportive conditions if I can. Emily Rothenberg is an American expat and meditator living in Mandalay. Wishing to use the lockdown to deepen her Dhamma practice, she was not able to find a monastery that would accept her, likely due to a fear that foreigners were carrying higher infection rates. She shares her observations on the Buddhist response to the coming coronavirus in Mandalay. I've been working on waste issues for a long time, um, and I've always wanted to do it at an international scale. I've done some work in Cuba, some work in Italy. I actually was looking for a Fulbright to go to Italy, southern Italy, and do this work, but it required a PhD, and in the midst of it, I came across this Fulbright Public Policy Fellowship, which was kind of a perfect fit for where I was at, and it was offered in four countries, and I didn't speak enough French to go to the Ivory Coast. Um, I didn't want to go to the Ukraine. I could have gone to Peru, but uh, Myanmar was the only one that, that explicitly said they were looking for environmental policy specialists, and... I don't know, something just struck me about it, and I've studied Theravadan Buddhism, so I thought it could be an interesting crossover. They're pretty competitive grants, but somehow I, I got it, and my proposal was both to work with the city government, either MCDC or YCDC, on their new waste reduction strategic plan, sustainable waste management and outreach to the community to improve waste reduction behaviors, anti-littering, etc. And I also had this research question about how could Buddhist ethics be incorporated into a greater sense of environmental responsibility amongst the Myanmar public. So I came out to Myanmar pretty much as a clean slate 
I had never been anywhere in Asia before, and I also knew that it was going to be a different kind of traveling or living abroad for me because it was the first time that I didn't speak the language fluently of the of the place I was going to. Um, I spoke about zero. I learned Jay-Z Dimbare and Mingalava from YouTube videos <laughs> before I left, and I ordered a pocket guide from uh, Lonely Planet or something, but, you know, I came pretty much prepared to just be totally brand new to the culture and the landscape and the environment. And Yangon was awesome. It was really, really humid and sticky when I first got there. And that was a bit of a shock. And then I came to Mandalay and was picked up by some of my colleagues from the cleansing department at MCDC and, you know, had our first communication adventures in the car. Their English was somewhat limited, but as we came into the city, it just Mandalay was not, it was not what I expected at all. I, I wasn't really sure what to expect, but it was definitely more hectic. So, you know, I was really eager to spend some time after my grant sitting at a monastery. I was familiar with the practices of Utejaniya because I had learned with Western teachers who had studied directly with him in Myanmar and was hoping to go to Shui Ummin. Also had some other monasteries in mind that I thought I would be able to visit, but I mean, interestingly, when I got there, I think it's always such a, it's always such a, a hectic transition arriving in a new country, especially if it's a place where you don't speak the language. And I think I kept my practice for about two or three weeks, and then it sort of faded, and I started meditating less and less. And I thought it was really quite funny that I was meditating less than I had for years living in a Buddhist country. I did go visit a number of the temples. In fact, I remember when I first arrived in Yangon and, you know, I had some meetings there to get started. And then I was did a couple of little tourist activities and seeing the lay of the land. And I went to Shwedagon and um, I was watching these women pray in one of the temples in there. And they sort of, one of them motioned for me to come in. And I did, and I took a mat and I sat down and and I just started crying and kind of weeping. It was the first time that I had been still in a number of weeks as I was getting ready to go and trying to set up a new computer and all the vaccinations and everything. And I think I I didn't realize how wrapped up in all of that I was. And just I remember just kind of touching that stillness for a moment, sitting on the ground. I was so surprised by how much, I guess, superstition and deism there was in what I saw being practiced, the Buddhism I saw being practiced in Myanmar. It's not a criticism, it just was, it was unfamiliar to me. I didn't realize how many nuances there were to the belief system there. And of course, it varies across people, but yeah, it was a new finding for me. When I first got to Mandalay, my, I guess you could call him my boss, the committee chair for the department I was working for, it took us some time to find a groove in our relationship, and at a certain point, I ended up basically rescuing a Myanmar street dog, and I am, I am not a dog person. I never wanted a dog. I'm not someone who thinks I have to rescue every ailing street dog in Southeast Asia, but I just, this one, she was born right in front of my hotel, and we just had this little special bond, and she ended up being hit by a car before I took her in, and um, there unfolded this epic story of of me and Lucy the dog and my boss got involved and he got a special dispensation to take the night bus from Mandalay to Yangon because normally they don't allow dogs and MCDC met me there and there was a whole 
you know, entourage of people escorting me and the dog out to the bus. But anyway, it totally changed the nature of our relationship when he realized also that I was a Buddhist practitioner and I apparently it had a very big impact on him that I would have the karuna, the compassion to have wanted to save this little dog's life. And he was impressed by that. And it and we developed a friendship around that. And he actually, he has my dog right now. Uh, she's basically his now, which is a bit sad for me. But also, I think he explored and developed some new forms of love that, that weren't really a part of his life before. He, he lives alone. And Lucy became the MCDC dog. She would ride in the car with us, with the driver to go to appointments. He takes her on trips. He's gotten kittens now to keep her company and been through a lot with her also. So um, we became co-parents of Lucy and and friends in Buddhist practice. I refer to him as Saya. Sometimes I found out that he had taken vows actually for a couple of years and he refers to it as the happiest time in his life. So I was just sort of hitting my stride in Myanmar finally after months of adjusting to the climate, to the air quality, to the cultural differences, the work style, you know, communication styles and some projects that I wanted to do were finally coagulating and meeting with partners and this was maybe around February. I took a brief trip to Rakhine to go to Napoli Beach and had a great time there, participated in a clean up a part of a CSR activity that was organized by Hilton and some other hotels there that actually kind of operate their own waste collection system because it wasn't there before. And um, after that, I stopped back in Yangon. And it was while I was there that I found out that my petition to extend my grant would not be granted, would not be accepted because of COVID. And I think it was less than 24 hours later that we all, every Fulbrighter, got a notice saying that we were under, under voluntary evacuation. At that time, I had a phone conversation with my mother from the lobby in the hotel in Yangon, and she was pretty panicked because things were already really chaotic in the United States at that point. I think lockdown had already started here. Meanwhile, in Myanmar, life was you know, business as usual still, mostly because there was no capacity for testing yet. Any tests that they were doing there for COVID were being sent to Thailand. And there was speculation that the quality and capacity of the tests weren't, that it wasn't very accurate. So there were no proven cases yet. And everybody was kind of going about their normal lives. And I knew for certain I did not want to come back to the United States. I wasn't planning on it. My plan for the summer was to spend some time sitting in Myanmar after my grant was finished and then go spend time traveling in Southeast Asia, maybe come home for a bit to Chicago, go back to Italy for a visit to my my second virtual home there and um, hopefully have a new job that I could start by the fall in Myanmar. And so, yeah, that was February. And I think it was a week after it was declared a pandemic that the Department of State issued a level four travel warning, which triggered the Department of State to basically recall every single Peace Corps volunteer, every single Fulbrighter around the world, and there are thousands of them. It was pretty much chaos. I did not want to leave. I was still pretty steadfast that I didn't want to leave, but I was starting to not know where to go, and I was starting to not know where was safe. I didn't really want to be stuck in Mandalay if there were an outbreak. I knew from my boss, who works at the cleansing department, that the healthcare system was 
just not prepared to handle a massive outbreak of COVID there. And in Yangon, I thought, well, the situation will be even worse. I really wanted to go ride it out in Pien and be at a monastery. And I thought that there would be no better way to sit out a global disruption like this than to just sit with it. And I thought it would be the perfect time to spend a couple months in deep meditation, but I couldn't find anywhere that would take me because everyone was really frightened of of taking in foreigners and being responsible, um, you know, if someone were to get ill and also just obviously gatherings, you know, in spaces like that wasn't a great idea. So I even took a taxi one night to Pien to go meet with the main abbot there and had um, the American-born nun, Viranyani, translate for me as I basically pled my case to stay there. You know, please, I don't want to go back to America. Help me. And he said he agreed that I could stay if she were also there. But of course, she she didn't know if she was staying and she didn't want to be responsible for me either. So I got to sit with them. There were some foreigners who had been there for several months and everybody was being sent home the next day. And I got to sit with them for one final Dhamma talk for about an hour or two before I took a taxi home that night. And I remember sitting in that meditation hall and just... Oh my God, the stillness. Um, it was so good, that stillness for that hour, however long it lasted. And I was given um, some printouts of some metta chants and parts of the metta sutta, which I, I brought home with me. And later, that was kind of the one thing that saved me in the first couple of weeks when I came back was just repeating the metta chants. It was the only thing that brought me any sense of peace. So as Fulbrighters, we were given the opportunity to book a flight home, all expenses paid through the Department of State's travel agency. And that was a nightmare. And that was just about the same day that Thailand was closing its borders, which of course, um, Bangkok is a hub for something like 80% of all the flights that go in and out of Myanmar. And other countries had already started to shut down. Thailand was going to begin requiring a COVID negative certificate to even get into their airport. And that didn't exist in Myanmar. There was nowhere to get that. So we were all kind of panicking, trying to figure out what to do. Every expat I know was sending each other text messages saying, are you in camp leaving or staying? Where are you going? Meanwhile, seeing these awful reports about airports around the world, and the last thing I wanted to do right then was fly through four international airports and be stuck in throngs of people for eight or nine hours at a time. My friend trying to go to home to Uruguay from Mandalay had left just a bit before me, and she was sending me live reports of just a nightmare being stuck in all these airports around the world. So I wasn't particularly eager to do that, and I also really still wanted to stay in Myanmar, but once my monastery plan was out of the question, I really didn't know where to go, and I ended up, I booked a flight, which I knew was cancelable, to go through Bangkok, arriving something like 11 p.m. just before the cutoff to need one of those certificates to get through the line. I wasn't sure if I would make it. I packed in a rush, had to leave a lot of things behind. I've never left a hotel room so messy before in my life. I'm usually very tidy. And I thought to myself, okay, this is what it feels like maybe when people are in some sort of natural emergency and they they have to leave. So I packed up what I could and I ran to the airport and I saw that line of probably, you know, every tourist that was left in Mandalay heading into Bangkok and I did not have a good feeling about it at all. 
And I called my mother and I told her, I don't want to do this. I don't feel good about it. And for once she agreed with me and I got out of that line. And about a minute later, I got a call from the travel agency saying that actually the, the purchase had never gone all the way through because of an error from the agent who I was working with over the phone. So instead, I, I caught the last flight from the airport into Yangon and was just so relieved to not be traveling internationally. It was really peaceful. Almost nobody was on the flight. Got into Yangon, checked into a hotel. Everything was still pretty much fine, except the proverbial SHIT was starting to hit the fan. And, you know, globally, you're starting to hear a lot of news about what was going on, things in Italy getting worse and worse. And... Um, Someone from the embassy invited me to stay in her empty apartment. She had already left early for her maternity leave, and it was nearby where I was staying, and it was a fancy, all-expenses-paid apartment with a generator and security and a pool and filtered water. And so I said, are you sure? Okay, thanks. And I went in there, and just as I was kind of getting settled and prepared to, you know, I did my grocery shopping. I was planning to ride out. Um, the pandemic there and got a knock on the door from some other women from the U.S. Embassy who lived in the building and they let themselves right in, were not wearing masks, were apparently not social distancing, proceeded to rummage through everything in the kitchen and then, you know, sort of demanded that I tell them what my plan was to leave and I said, well, I don't, I don't really want to leave. I feel safer here for a lot of reasons I don't want to get stuck in the United States. I anticipated that there would be civil unrest of some sort. I didn't know they would be race riots specifically, but I kind of saw that coming for a while. I didn't want to be stuck in a country that I knew would be on, you know, cannot travel, travel ban lists for a long time. And anyway, they went through a litany of things that could possibly go wrong if I stayed and, and kind of startled me and really pressured me to make a flight out. And the next day I reluctantly went down to the Qatar Airways office and waited in line for several hours to get on one of the relief flights that they had organized and made my plan to have my last few days in Yangon. And they were not very pleasant. That was, you know, they had just started testing in that last day or two. And so they had their first confirmed cases and Suddenly, everybody was taking temperatures when you walked into buildings and, you know, finally wearing masks and runs on supplies at the grocery store and such. So it was a bit unpleasant. And um, more than anything, I was nervous that if something were to go awry at the time you were required to go into a public hospital, you wouldn't be allowed to be treated at a private clinic. So I was nervous about that, although I had spoken to the American nun about staying or going. And she told me a story about having to be treated in the Myanmar hospital one time. And she said, you know, she kind of sat with it and saw the compassion of the doctors there and that they were doing the best that they could. And she no longer had fear about what it would mean to have healthcare in a developing country that doesn't have access to a lot. So I, I thought about that too, kind of what I was willing to sacrifice. And at the end of the day, between my mother's fears and um, that visit from the people at the embassy, I, you know, just very reluctantly agreed to make that flight reservation and was really, really sad to be wheeling my suitcases out and going to the airport that night. I cried by myself in the bathroom in JFK for a really long time before I got myself to walk through 
the customs line back into the United States. And it was just like a totally different world coming into JFK, you know, from having left Myanmar. I mean, I don't mean culturally, I mean, because of where the U.S. was at and where New York was at specifically with COVID at that time. All the flights were canceled. I didn't know how I was going to get back to Chicago, but eventually I, I got on a Delta flight and I came back and came to quarantine at a friend's house that was empty here in my hometown, a suburb of Chicago. When I got back to the States, I think it was maybe exactly March 31st, I had this plan that I was going to do my own 10-day silent retreat at home. <laughs> I was just, I was craving stillness. I was craving Dhamma. I was craving, I think, some sort of internal refuge from all this chaos that had been going on. And those last few weeks when I was in Myanmar were not very pleasant. I wasn't sleeping very much. I was really torn up about what to do. I didn't really know where I was going to go or going to live. I mean, like everyone, I think there was a lot of uncertainty. And I had just left behind all of these projects that I, you know, poured my heart into trying to develop for several months. And they were just at the point of blossoming plus this little dog that I rescued that I had to leave behind. So there was a lot of grief, I think. And um, so I endeavored to embark upon this retreat, you know, turned on my out of office, turned off the computer, turned off the phone, etc. I set up a little altar for myself using my friend's old wooden TV stand and this little green silk cloth that I had bought in Thailand and you know, some artwork I brought back from Myanmar and a clock and kind of went to get to it. And I was pretty restless and there wasn't a lot of stillness to be found in there. And I think, you know, what I, what I did for refuge was start reading metta sutta portions and, and doing metta chants and metta practice. That was really the only time that my mind really calmed down. And I suppose in a way it was a bit easy to feel that because, of course, the world, I think that was a moment in COVID where the world briefly was united in this global pandemic and what they perceived as this global fight. I struggled because I came back to this very affluent neighborhood in the town where I come from. And the first day I went out for a long walk in silence and I couldn't believe it, but the familiar sound of landscapers was going in the distance. And I thought, seriously, you people need to have your landscapers come in the midst of this? And everything that I dislike about this community came rushing you know, into my brain. And I spent most of those days that I was trying to practice really working with um, pretty heavy resentment and aversion toward this town where I'm from and everything it represents to me. And then I would go back inside and, and do metta again. And every day I would go out for a walk until finally one day um, I went for a walk and I started a practice of just looking at every house and really looking at it outside the, the context and these sort of you know, conditions of conditional associations of what I think of Highland Park as being. And I would look at each house and kind of peek inside and look at their windows and think about the people inside and what their lives might be like in lockdown and what they were wishing for, hoping for. And I was, I don't know, just suddenly that day able to see each household with compassion. And I had just this really beautiful 
walk, even though it got cloudy and started raining. It even snowed a couple times when I came back. It was just such a harsh transition from uh, sunny, tropical Yangon. But I suppose things shifted for me that day. And I, I still, um, what ended up happening is that by, I think, day eight, I somehow began watching Netflix all night long. And that's when I knew I had to connect with other human beings and my retreat wasn't going as planned. And as it turned out, just when I turned my computer on, I got noticed that an old Dharma teacher of mine, the one who had spent years taking vows with Sayada Utejaniya, actually was running a day-long retreat virtually. So I attended that the next day. And it took not 20 minutes of sitting together as a group. And then he you know, instructed us to go outside and do our own walking meditation for 30 minutes that... I just started sobbing um, when I got outside, and I think I just needed to be connected with other human beings to feel all that the emotion there was around this shakeup and around this loss. And I had really been beating myself up for even feeling upset because I thought I knew so many more people were so much more vulnerable than I was. I had money in a bank account, a house to come to, access to food, and yet I was really, really devastated by losing something that I, I worked really hard for and not getting to say goodbye, you know, just coming back to a place I never wanted to come back to. So just connecting with other people in a sangha was really, really meaningful to me that day. And one good thing about the pandemic is that every sangha I've ever been a part of in any of the many places I've lived are now all meeting online. So I had lots of groups I could plug into and I started doing that. And still for a while, I just wasn't practicing. I basically got busy to deal with my grief and started to see how just how reactive I felt all the time. I could see that I had no mindfulness. And so I started just asking a couple of friends, you know, can we, can I call you at X time on video call and can we just sit together? And I started doing that in recent weeks and it just, it felt so good, you know, that that stillness, that clarity, that refuge is still there. And as these months have passed, I've started digging in a little bit more into where I am living. Uh, it's gotten warm. I planted some plants, have a little tiny garden now going. Um, I'm setting up some ways to enjoy the outdoors. I'm going for some great walks and bike rides. There's a lot of opportunity to do bird watching here. There's a really beautiful lake that looks like a sea, actually. And, you know, a couple of Dharma teachers that I talked to when I first got back were saying, well, remember, Dhamma is everywhere. And it pissed me off. I mean, I was like, yeah, it's everywhere, but it's not the same as being in a monastery in Southeast Asia in a tropical country. You know, it's definitely not the same with these landscapers going off in people's Mercedes and their driveways and everything else. But the reality is that my reaction to, you know, the experiences I'm having in life, my reaction to things going on around me, that is habitual. I mean, that is a matter of practice and it doesn't really matter where I am. And so would it have been an easier, more supportive environment to do a silent retreat on an extended basis at a monastery um, with other people with a similar commitment? Yes. But I'm kind of coming back to, you know, what it means to practice in lay life and trying to use this time to be prepared and open for whatever is coming next. And it might be coming back to Myanmar. That certainly feels unfinished to me in a lot of ways, but 
it also might be something else. And there's a certain relaxation in, you know, letting go of, of that need to sort of finish or complete what I think needs to be completed. So I, I am finding some more peace in my practice today. And I think more than anything, it's just connecting with others. I, I've been single and, and lived alone for a long time. And I think I really took for granted what a role my communities and community connection played for me, even just in, in regulating my, my body and how I feel just being in the presence of other human beings, what a difference that makes. I think it was easy to take for granted how different it feels to go work at a cafe or in a library than to, you know, be at home all day by myself. So the birds are my friends here, and I have a few neighbors who I chat with from the driveway, but um, as it turns out, it is a pretty solitary life, and, you know, I'm finding other lessons than I would have if I had been able to stay in Myanmar, it's not the same, but there's still growth, and I'm, I'm finding it now. The initial funds that allowed us to set up this Insight Myanmar podcast came unexpectedly, and we did our best to stretch them as far as possible. Unfortunately, that generous startup donation could not have predicted the pressing need to cover our exploding health crisis and meeting the interest and concern many meditators have expressed about the situation at Burmese monasteries and meditation centers. So, if you would like to hear podcasts that address this new content or assist others in being able to access them, please consider making a donation to fund this work. Most all podcast contributors work entirely as volunteers, and those few receiving remuneration are meditators who have offered 50% or more discount for their professional services. Nonetheless, there is still no real way to produce an episode for less than several hundred dollars. Whatever funds we are able to collect now will be used solely for producing these new episodes, and any additional donations will allow us to increase our run. Thank you for your support. Stay safe and be well. We welcome your contribution in any amount, denomination, and transfer method. You may give via Patreon at patreon.com slash insightmyanmar, via PayPal at paypal.me slash insightmyanmar, or by credit card by going to insightmyanmar.org slash donation. In all cases, that's Insight Myanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. You can also go to the GoFundMe site and search Insight Myanmar to find our present campaign. If you are in Myanmar and would like to give a cash donation, please feel free to get in touch with us. Next, we hear from David Sudar, who ordained for several years under Sayada Utejaniya at Shwayumin Monastery and now teaches meditation himself. Based in Portland, Oregon, he had been visiting Yangon when the pandemic hit. You can learn more about David from his website, pathofsincerity.com. My spiritual journey really started when I was 19, by chance of reading a Dalai Lama book, when I was just really hungry for a, a deeper drive or purpose or meaning to life. And it really struck a chord with me, with the Buddhist worldview and the meditative worldview. And over the years to come, I then launched that through the reading into a yoga practice, which then eventually led to a meditative practice. And I initially started meditation through doing a 10-day Goenka retreat, 10-day Vipassana course. And over the course of five or six years of getting more into yoga and meditation, it just increasingly became the only Thing I was really interested in doing. And 
as my daily practice picked up and my retreat time picked up, I was living in a city in the U.S. And it was slowly dawning on me that I really wanted to do it full time with no nothing holding me back, no responsibilities. And so I, I planned for a few years and set myself up to go on an indefinite spiritual journey, which led me to living at a Zen center for a time, studying yoga in India, uh, doing long Vipassana retreats. And then eventually I realized that the, the meditation specifically was the thing that was really calling to me. And in that also the Burmese Vipassana tradition, and I had encountered the teachings of Sayada Utejaniya along the way, first through a book and then through doing a retreat with one of his students in Malaysia. And the, the approach just really resonated with me. And so I decided to go uh, practice with him in Myanmar. And at that point, my intention, I it was knew that's all I wanted to do. So I was going to go and ordain as a monk and practice indefinitely, it, just until I felt like I was done, if that ever came. And so in the end, I practiced there with Sayadaw for about two years really just engaging in intensive meditation the whole time and went from a place where I, I still felt like I was stumbling along with the meditation to where I really felt I had a pretty good grasp on what I was doing. And that was one of the real gifts that Sayadaw gave me was instead of just giving a technique, he really taught me how to understand my own mind and how to work with it skillfully. In that period, really just felt like I came home to myself and found a real sense of peace within myself amidst the changing conditions of life. So at a certain point, it just felt like it was time to move on to a different form of practice. So after about two years, I decided to disrobe and came back to the United States. And that was now, I think, about four, four or five years ago. And since then, the practice has continued to evolve and you know, transform in all sorts of interesting ways. And I've started teaching a lot and finding that place as Sayadaw teaches a lot that practice isn't just for the monastery or the retreat. It's awareness and wisdom are for everyday life. And so I've been finding it's so rich to explore that intersection in living in a city, living in relationships with work and money and in how to practice. And so that's kind of where I'm at these days. So with respect to bringing the practice, my own practice alive in daily life in an urban setting the past few years, you know, Saida sometimes calls his teachings or uses this line, awareness plus wisdom. And this has really captured a lot of it for me, where firstly, it's been about seeing how awareness isn't confined to the sitting meditation and just this little bit of mindfulness of recognition of what's going on around me, what's happening in my own mind, my own mind states, feeling states, reactivity states, and having a, a somewhat focused or refined uh, attunement just to my inner state. And so monitoring and tracking as it changes and shifts throughout the day. And then in that, greeting it the, with the wisdom side, this what Sayadaw calls right attitude. So instead of saying, oh, a little craving came up or some other form of reactivity, greeting it, just, oh, this is here right now. No problem. It's just nature. So in that, finding a lot of self-acceptance 
and just allowing whatever is to be there to be there. But in that right attitude piece, along with this clear seeing of it, just as a, a state of nature, just happening, finding a way to have a new relationship with it, to greet it with wisdom, with equanimity, patience, or maybe to lean more into greeting those states with compassion. And ultimately, as awareness, when it's a little more stable and when I'm able to greet these things that way, bringing in some of this deeper investigation. And I think in my practice, or something I really loved about Sayadaw, how he taught working with the mind in this way, was it was very organic. Like he didn't give a set prescription, like do this exact little technique and then do the other one in this order and that. He was just like, you have to know your own mind. Ask why, study it, look at it from different angles. And so what I found taking that these days or in recent years really helpful is when I notice these things, they come up, just asking myself, well, what's this about? What's really going on here? And why is, why am I afraid right now? And so I found that being able to find some of the hidden roots, some of the deeper views or cravings that are leading to these different states. And so I found with that, that approach of greeting it with awareness, right attitude, and then an investigative flavor has, has been a really powerful way to not get lost in destructive states and to start to really uproot them and also to cultivate uh, beautiful states of mind, allowing space for more compassion, care, uh, just patience, presence, equanimity to come in. And so that has been, that, that way of working with the mind specifically has been what I found really useful in daily life. So after Myanmar, and once I left and came back to the States, there was about a year and a half, two-year period where I was still a little transient and moving around. And then I settled back into Portland, Oregon, where I used to live. And I just reconnected with an old yoga teacher. And I, I told her a little bit about what I've been up to the past several years. And that I was interested in teaching. And she invited me to come teach some of her programs. And after that, the, the next few years, really just that one teaching gig, people just kept inviting me to teach other things. And before I knew it, I, I had a pretty full schedule teaching everywhere from yoga studios to wellness centers, to a Buddhist group, to uh, corporations. And throughout that, some of the guiding principles I've had in sharing the Dhamma and meditation, and some of the basic advice the Buddha had where, you know, you speak to the level people are at. And so when I lead a Buddhist group, I might talk a little bit more to some of the subtler points of the Dharma of, you know, working with insights into emptiness or the Noble Eightfold Path. Whereas if I teach in a, with more beginner students, you know, sometimes then it's really just establishing basics of mindfulness equanimity. What is it to be aware? How to greet your different emotions or feelings with a sense of okayness? And at times, maybe shift a bit more into a shamatha or focused attention practice, or just greet ourselves with a self-compassion practice. So a lot of it, the teaching has really been about sizing up or attuning to where the different people in the room are at, and using, you know, the Buddha so much admiration and just awe at how skillful he was in providing such a wide array of tools and practices to greet 
different situations, different people, uh, different uh, obstructions of mind. And so on one level, there is just that attuning to the students, but I see ultimately at the core of it, it's really what I've talked about with Utejani as practice, this awareness plus wisdom practice. It's the same basic system for all different students. And something about that is really, really inspiring to me that it, there's a real simplicity to it. You know, at the end of the day, it's come into awareness and just learn to see whatever is happening is what it is. This is, this is just what's happening in front of us. No need to fight it, resist it, want something different. And so through the vehicle of awareness and stabilizing awareness, it's continuing to just help people come more into that okayness of being by way of clear seeing is what it is. And maybe the, the one other little bit to toss on there is something, I think a difference between reading a book or listening to a guided meditation that I'm I appreciate about my time with Sayadaw and what I try to emulate in person is that there is something about an actual relationship among humans that is really powerful as a teaching tool to just greet people with empathy and care and understanding and to see them and to have developed relationships, I think can be such a profound, not even just in teacher-student, but even among Sangha, among peers. And so that development of Sangha I see as also a very, a very potent way to develop on the path. Actually, I spent the month of February back at Choyo Min in Myanmar practicing with Sayada. And towards the end of that month, right before I was to come home, and you know, historically this was right around when the global pandemic was picking up a little bit. I actually, I got really sick at the end of February and I had basically all of the symptoms of the, the COVID-19 virus. And I was really pretty nervous flying internationally. I, was, I wasn't sure if I was even gonna get let back into the United States. So I, I did and I, I flew back and then I ended up when I arrived back home, I just self quarantined in my bedroom for about 10 days. That was an interesting time where you know, there's something about just being in a, a small room, enclosed room for days on end, feeling pretty, pretty icky that, you know, I was, I was really pretty okay with it, but I was noticing getting a bit restless and wanting to, to go get on with my life. And then ironically, as soon as I got better, that's when it, things really picked up societally and my city started to shut down. And since then, since my health has returned, I've personally actually, you know, my, my income has dropped quite a bit and my work situation has shifted and I, I haven't been able to see people in person. And so in that level, there's was a little bit of, I don't know, a little bit of sadness came in, but it wasn't too strong for me. And, and really much more powerfully, I, I used the opportunity to start teaching a a lot more and like I'm leading a, a morning meditation on Zoom every day and uh, more just teaching events throughout the week and, and not just teaching but also just having more Dhamma sharing with people through the web as I have more time available in the week. So on that level I've been finding a lot of purpose and meaning and, and exercising that care and compassion has felt very wholesome. But I think also something personally that I have really 
I think I, I've been through similar situations before, not necessarily pandemic, but just alterations to life that have really disrupted the day-to-day. And I think something I've found for myself that has been really powerful and helpful has been keeping up with good habits. And so I, I meditate, I do formal practice every day. I go on at least a one hour walk every day. I still eat pretty healthy. I try to keep tabs on uh, some people through Zoom and phone calls. And just in general, keep up my self maintenance and keep staying interested in reading. And so just in that, I find keeping these basic habits together and that increase of, of purpose, I've, I've been finding I've actually been really pretty stable and in and, and really quite good spirits. And of, of course, there is some of the greater understanding of society, the stressors, and maybe midterm or long-term things will get more challenging for me on a more logistical level. But I'm just trusting, you know, trusting the Dharma, trusting life, and I don't really think too far into the future on those fear and anxiety levels. And I just stay in my day-to-day, keep my habits, my routines, and apply myself and trust that it will work out. And that has uh, served me pretty well so far. But one thing I've noticed as a starting point and getting to connect with at least 100 people individually, not necessarily one-on-one, but hearing from quite a number of people in small groups over the past couple months is for the starting point that there isn't, I don't see there as a normal experience or a singular response people are having to this. And so there, there's actually a number of people who are doing really well. And a lot of people who are somewhere in the middle who are like, well, this is an inconvenience and there's some things coming up, but I'm really pretty, still pretty solid. And then there are a big chunk of people who are really struggling. And so I see the starting point for me is to normalize whatever anyone is experiencing. And so, well, if they feel guilt that they're doing well, well, that, you know, look at that and that's okay. And if they're somewhere in the middle or if they're really struggling and they're hard on themselves, well, just notice that and allow that. And so the starting point is to really give space for wherever people are at and to not shame or guilt them or to, to help them see the ways that they might feel like it's not okay to be how they are. And from that starting point, the people who are struggling, I think two things I've really seen come up the strongest. One is the fear and anxiety about future, like what's going to happen, whether that's economically or relationally or personally or societally. And that, the fear and anxiety, you know, on one level, it's, the same awareness and wisdom practice just to just to notice that okay this is what's coming up this is just nature this is normal and sometimes that can be enough to shift the attitude towards it but a couple other things person dependent one is to bring in a sense of compassion towards themselves and i i found the work of kristen neff who is not a, a buddhist but she's a, a scientific researcher who draws heavily on buddhist practices has develop some very simple self-compassion practices I'd like to share with people. Basically just to change some of that relationship, to be a little kinder to ourselves. Because in the West, I think when we have difficulty, we tend to get really hard on ourselves or check out or, or something. So bringing in some compassion. And another way 
on top of attitude and compassion is, a, again, that investigative practice. And so asking ourselves, well, what is this fear really about? What are the, say, the basic stories involved with it? Which usually just breaks down to something like, uh, I believe it's not going to work out or something bad's going to happen or I won't be able to control it. So seeing whether it's the, the underlying views or deeper emotions or sentiments that are there by starting to talk to it and investigate it and look more closely at it, if there already is some degree of stability in the mind, people are able to soften their experience of the fear and anxiety. And I think a second big challenge I'm noticing with people has to do at least where, where I'm living in Oregon, we're still in a, a stay-at-home order. And so we're not really supposed to see people outside of our household. And I'm noticing a lot of people struggling with the social isolation, whether that's loneliness or just the lack of human touch and contact. And even in the Zoom sessions I lead, uh, people often comment that it, it's just hard for them to find their social connection through a screen that it, it's just different than being in person. And with that, you know, there is a reality that comes up for people. And so again, just making space through that and allowing that, okay, well, that's what's here right now. Can we make friends with that and be at peace with that? And finding in that, finding a little bit of that, that companionship and that sense of home and ease in ourselves through the awareness practice, through the awareness and wisdom practice. And, even in that, there, there can be one level where that can lead us just to an acceptance of what it is, but also to patience. And patience, in some sense, is just the willingness to be with suffering or discomfort. And so, okay, well, this just is what it is right now, and it might change in the future. So can we have some patience? Maybe bring in some compassion along the way. But And you know, there's skillful behaviors we could apply to it on ways people could handle it, but that's not so much my focus. The inner life, more of that, hmm, just patience and, but we're doing the best we can. You know, we, and, and maybe this is the last thing I'll, I'll throw in here on, on that note of doing the best we can, where I think sometimes when people see the social isolation, they get frustrated with the options, say Zoom, Zoom connections, or you know, just going out on walks and seeing people even they get frustrated by that and then decide to do nothing and go even further into their shell. It's almost as if this mentality of, if I can't have everything, well, then I don't want anything. And then, as I was talking about earlier with building good habits, I find there can be a tendency to let go of good habits uh, all across the board and just go further into the shell and, and slip into this pit of despair. And so I find that just that mentality of doing the best we can and okay, well, at least I can maintain good habits. At least I can see people on Zoom. At least I can do my sitting practice. At least I can exercise. And focusing on that, what we can do, uh, really helps to brighten the mind overall in powerful ways. With respect to some of the, the silver linings or the maybe the hidden positives of a situation like this, just to preface this, I, I do get a little careful about because I see sometimes that people can almost discount the, the opportunities in the present because it will get better in the future. And so I always just like to keep that in check a little bit, that we shouldn't focus too much on these, these benefits that might come sometime in the distant future 
if we're using that as a way to avoid or bypass the suffering that we're experiencing right now. But that being said, if we can hold our presence and be with our present, I do think there are some really profound opportunities in this situation. And one thing I've already started to notice in myself and in students and in peers and even non-meditators is attuning into what's really important. And I've seen a lot of people just start this process when all of a sudden when the day-to-day is disrupting, people are like, wait a minute, this job that I've been working that felt like soulless and lifeless, do I really want to keep doing that? Oh, this style of life I've been engaged in that maybe is chasing status or just uh, success or money or a bunch of just unending pleasant experiences. Is that really bringing me satisfaction? And so I see that tragedy as a way of really bringing us to the heart of the matter, to the heart of ourselves and checking in with our values and our integrity or re-questioning our whole value system altogether. And so I'm optimistic that as a whole, well, not everyone is going to engage with that process. I think there is a general movement in society where more people are doing that. And even some of these really high-level politicians who I, I generally don't have the most favorable opinion of, largely because I don't see a lot of empathy and compassion towards the masses coming from them, I've seen more of that come in now, where it's like, oh, wow, we really actually have to care about people. And there's something really, really beautiful, just a greater movement, and, and maybe this ties in, that when... I think we get more in touch with what matters for us. We see that that others matter, that we as a collective matter, the whole species, and which is really touching into the principle of meta, uh, loving kindness, goodwill. I'm optimistic more of that will creep in. On top of you know, there's some you know, just more societal musings of. I think anytime there is a, a destabilizing of a societal structure, there's an opportunity to restabilize in a more sustainable way. And I don't know enough about you know, that, that level of societal development to make a real educated statement, but I am, I'm optimistic that in some form we will, even just something like in the United States, maybe a little bit more movement towards universal health care, maybe in that direction. And so I do have a lot of optimism, even if it's you know, misguided or maybe I think it's useful for, for my spirit to, to see some of those silver linings and opportunities. Following is Gary Lung, an Australian meditator who has made several pilgrimages to Myanmar. As the coronavirus hit the country, he was moving from one intensive retreat to another and had just ordained as a novice monk during a course in the Sagain Hills when the lockdown in Myanmar was just underway. I'm in, I'm back in Sydney, Australia. Uh, what's most alive or present? Um, I guess I'm, oh, everyone in Sydney, everyone in Australia is self-isolating. So I'm just at home all day. I have a lot of free time now. So I guess I just practice meditation and I'm trying to figure out what to do next. Um, I've been in Myanmar for eight months. Um, before very abruptly returning to Sydney because of COVID-19. So now I'm suddenly back and working out what to do next. Well, the most part of my eight months in Myanmar, I was meditating, um, living and meditating in monasteries. 
Uh, I didn't really go out with a go, go to Myanmar with a set plan. Um, there were a few teachers that I had wanted to learn from. Say the old engineer at Shuimin. I wanted to practice some meta also, uh, and I wanted to spend some time at uh, Tabawa. Um, but I didn't really go to Myanmar with a defined plan. I sort of just went along and yeah, so you know, was open to what would happen. Um, in January, I was actually in Sagaing. Uh, I was in, at a retreat in Chaswa, uh, the retreat organized by Vipassana Hawaii uh, with Taito Ungananda, Michelle McDonald, Stephen Smith, and Dele Makamala as teachers. That's a Mahasi silent retreat for three weeks. Um, and that was a time when COVID-19 news was first breaking um, because I was in the silent retreat and I'd already handed in my phone. I didn't actually receive any of that news. Um, it wasn't until the end of the retreat. Well, actually, we got a little bit, bit of it came out in the middle of the retreat, but we didn't receive so much information because the teachers wanted to keep us calm and it wasn't really an immediate uh, concern for us in the monastery. At the time, the, the virus was still just limited to China, I think. Um, so it wasn't a concern for us. Uh, so we didn't really find out much about it until the end of the retreat. And at that time, uh, the news was it was still mainly limited to China and Chinese government was taking it very seriously that they had controls in place. Um, so it wasn't really a concern for us. Uh, when we left the retreat, they gave us hand sanitizer, which at the time I was sort of amused by it. We're getting some hand sanitizer. I didn't really understand the seriousness of the situation um, and then when I left that airship I went to I actually visited a friend of ours uh, at Bowindung uh, for a few days so I went east from Sagaing to Moniwa um, and I was there for a few days at the time I didn't really I also still didn't really realise the seriousness of it um, until a few days later when my friend said that the other villagers were a bit scared of me because I was a foreigner um, and that I might have the virus. And I was, I started to realise, oh, something is going on here. Um, I mean, the, the full impact of it didn't really hit me. It still didn't really hit me. I, think, I don't think any of us knew how huge this would be at the time. Um, so I was there for a few days in uh, Bowendung in Moniwa, and then I went to Pindu Win uh, for the metro retreat at Chen Mei Mei, uh, which, again, is another silent retreat. Um, so I did two weeks of metro and one week of a partner. And again, I handed in my phone, so I wasn't receiving any news. Um, so at the end of that three weeks, we got a bit of news again that um, there was this coronavirus situation. Um, and it was still, I mean, what was imparted to us was that it still seemed to be quite under control. Um, it spread out to Japan at the time. Um, but it still didn't seem like something that we need to worry about unless we were travelling to China or Japan. Um, yeah, it's a bit strange because I was in this bubble in these meditation retreats and then I would suddenly get a bit of news at the end of the retreat that there was this um, epidemic situation. But uh, I guess it's when you suddenly get a little bit of news, it's different to being sort of slowly receiving the news each day the seriousness of it, um, or I guess the effect of it, doesn't really 
seep in because you're, you're not getting exposed to it over time. You're just sort of hearing about it and you're like, oh, there's this thing going on. Um, I didn't really notice many changes until maybe, would have been maybe February or March. So in February, I was hearing news from other meditators that Ha'ok in Pinuwin had closed, uh, closed to foreigners. Um, but daily life still seemed to be quite normal. People were still out and about on the street and going about their business. So daily life still seemed quite normal. In, I think it was late February, I went to Habawa and Tanyan, um, and life there was still quite normal. Uh, the volunteer activities were still ongoing. But when I was at Tabao, I was, you know, finally getting used regularly. So I was starting to realise, oh, this is actually coming a really serious global um, global issue. Um, we had a few meetings at the Bawa about how we would deal with the situation. But I think at the time, we still didn't really understand what this thing was and how to deal with it. And also at Tabawa, we had quite limited resources. So there wasn't a lot that we could do besides the volunteers themselves buying um, more cleaning supplies and doing more cleaning and buying hand sanitizer. Uh, the Bawa did later on introduce quarantine and other measures, uh, but at that stage I had already left to uh, another branch of Tabawa in Bargo. When I was in Tabawa in Bargo, uh, I had I was getting news again. I was on my phone, but it was still I was in the monastery. I was only I think I was only there for about a week or so. Um, but again, it was sort of a, it was sort of like I was in a bubble protected from the brunt of the impact in the rest of the world. I wasn't out on the street and seeing what was going on and talking to people. I was just spending most of my days meditating in the monastery. Um, it was at, when I was in Tabawa Bargo in mid-May, the countries basically started closing borders and the Australian government closed their border and fights started, started getting cancelled. Um, and then within the span of those two or three days, I realised, okay, I need to go and I just suddenly booked flights. One, the first flight I booked uh, was cancelled and I immediately booked my next flight back to Sydney um, because I knew that if, if one flight was cancelled, then others would get cancelled, so I'd better get back to Australia soon. Um, so when I did leave Tabawa Bargo, I took a cab to the airport. And at the airport, yeah, and that was when I really saw people wearing face masks and everyone was quite concerned. The airport was very... It wasn't busy. It wasn't like what it would normally have been. Um, and that was when I realised, oh, this is... Well, I really realised something serious was going on because all the borders, all the country's borders were closing and all the flights getting cancelled. Um, but that was actually the first impact of the coronavirus that I actually saw with my eyes, um, not hearing about it in the news or on the internet. Um, when I did receive a bit of information about the virus um, when meditating, it wouldn't say that it affected me that much. It was sort of just, oh, this is something that's happening. I try to maintain my attitude in my practice. So it's just you know, accept that it's something happening. And in the monastery, you can't really do much about it. Um, so it's sort of just acknowledge it and accept it as, as it is. Um, and I think for everyone, whether you're in daily life or in a monastery, at the time it was really hard to fully grasp what was going on. No one really understood what was going on. But especially when you're in the monastery and you're in this little bubble, yeah, you really don't know what's going on. You, don't, you really can't understand what's happening or what's going on outside. That said, you know, I did sort of get these bits of news and I realised, oh, okay, something's going on. 
Um, but it didn't really concern me so much. I think my biggest concern for the most part was I was hearing that other monasteries were getting closed um, and I wasn't sure where I would go next. Um, I was still planning to, in April, I was planning to go to Ireland to practice in some of the forest monasteries there. Uh, but I was hearing that those monasteries were also closing, so I really wasn't sure where I was going to go. So that was sort of in the background of my mind, um, where I would go next. I still didn't fully understand what this pandemic situation would become or what it was or what it would become. Uh, so I got back to Sydney and I went into quarantine in my, uh, actually in my childhood bedroom in my parents' place. Um, so again, it was sort of this situation where I was in a bubble. My parents would leave food outside my door and I would just stay in my room for the entirety of the two weeks. Um, and I was getting news again because I was on the on my phone and um, on my PC. Uh, but again, it's still, I was in a bit of a bubble because I wasn't out and about in the world. Uh, I was reconnecting with friends. Um, but after eight months in monasteries, I think I... You could say I was still a bit spaced out. I understood what was happening and I had concerns. I wouldn't say I was anxious about the situation. Um, I had concerns about it and I, you know, about what would happen and how people would deal with it. I wasn't really worried about myself. Um, I'm young and relatively healthy. So if I was to get the virus, I'm really, I was relatively confident that I would recover. My main concern was really just if I was to have the virus, after returning from overseas, I didn't want to spread any loved ones or anyone else. Um, that was really my main concern. It's strange because I'm out of the formal quarantine now. I'm still self-isolating uh, at home. But it means that, yeah, I sort of have a lot of free time nowadays, so I can practice meditation more. Um, I'm much more, after the formal quarantine, I did go out and walk around outside a bit more. And I sort of saw the empty streets and people wearing face masks. So sort of the front of what was happening what's happening is sinking in and I realize that more and I feel more grounded. Uh, I still practice meditation um, warmly at least an hour a day. You know, since I think the practice has put me in a good place to mentally deal with what's going on. Um, I'm not, I don't feel anxious about things. Uh, I'm not really worried about myself. It's more just concern for others and um, how people will deal with this health situation and the economic situation. Um, the pleasant surprise that's come out of this is because everyone is stuck at home, a lot of meditation centres in the West, uh, so in the US and the UK, they're now doing online sittings and online retreats. So I've been able to engage in those opportunities. Uh, I'm in Australia, so otherwise I wouldn't be able, have been able to, I guess, have access to those teachers. Uh, my meditation visa in Myanmar was due to expire in early April. Uh, so I'd been planning to stay in Myanmar until then and then travel to Thailand to practice in the forest monasteries over there. I hadn't planned to stay in Myanmar longer because the meditation visa extension process can be quite, quite time-consuming and slow and I didn't want to hand in my passport to a monastery and then be without it uh, in the case that I needed to leave the country uh, quite urgently. Um, so... I think it was still in my mind that I would go to Thailand to practice. I'd actually bought my flights already so that I could get the visa to go to Thailand. I think when I was hearing the news about the virus, it did occur to me that I, or maybe I should just go to a cave and practice for a few months 
and you know wait this thing out because I don't think my practice is at the stage where I can just be in total isolation for many months in a cave. Yeah, and also yeah, there's just logistical difficulties associated with that. In terms of the process of of actually deciding to leave, I was hearing news that the Australian government had they were closing their borders to non-residents and non-citizens, and then they had advised citizens to return. Uh, as I think the wording was return, if you wish to return, do so as soon as possible. Uh, so I initially booked my flights for one week later to go back to Australia. Um, I basically scratched my plans for Thailand um, due to that advice. Um, so I bought my flights back to Sydney for it was a week ahead. And then the day after I bought my flights, those flights were then cancelled um, because Australia had closed all their borders. Uh, so I immediately... That was actually the first instance I felt a bit of a... I guess it was like a bit of a rush. It was like, oh, something is not right. Um, it was like the first bit of, I guess, acute stress that I felt about what was going on because my flights were suddenly cancelled and I needed to respond quickly. Um, so I immediately bought uh, flights with another airline to leave. It was two days later. Things were quite... Travelling at the time was quite... It was tricky, I guess you could say. Um, Singapore had closed their borders to both people entering the country, to both, I should say, non-citizens entering the country and people transiting. So you couldn't transit through Singapore. Um, I was transiting through Kuala Lumpur. Uh, so Malaysia had closed their borders to non-residents, but they were still allowing trans- people to transit. I think the other options for me to get back from Yangon to Sydney were to fly through either China, transit through either China or Japan. Um, because of the virus situation there, that was I didn't really want to do that. Um, so I really only had, I mean, there was this option to take this flight through the transit through Kuala Lumpur, um, and I took that as soon as I could because I knew um, yeah, more flights are going to get cancelled. Um, and the day after I flew, that airline cancelled all their flights to Australia. Uh, so I was actually very lucky to get back in time. I don't think I realised immediately. Um, one of my my friend told me that the villagers were were scared because I was a foreigner and I was staying around and they were worried about the virus. Um, I think after I left, uh, it wasn't at that stage where I sort of felt anything, any sort of heightened suspicion or was looked upon differently. It was just sort of something that my friend told me and I realised, oh, yeah, it was something like I realised and I thought, oh, maybe I should keep a lower profile and I didn't want to... Well, I was planning to leave anyway, go to this other retreat at Chen Mei Mei. Uh, but I realised, yeah, I, I, mean, I guess I didn't want to cause my friend any problems. Um, when I left Chen Mei Mei, I think that was when I started realising people were quite worried about the virus and they were concerned about foreigners and that they may carry the virus. Um, I'm of Chinese descent. I'm not obviously... I'm of Chinese descent. And it's, it's, I get looked on in a funny way sometimes in Myanmar because I'm not mainland Chinese and I'm not Burmese Chinese. People sort of look at me and I'm like some sort of other sort of Chinese. This is not during the time of coronavirus. It's just like, especially when I'm in Mandalay, people look at me and they're not quite sure what to make of me. Um, um, but I'm, in March, after I left Chen Meng, um during this virus situation, I did get a sense that people were 
a bit more concerned about my presence. Um, and that may have been because I'm of Chinese descent. I'm not sure if the virus had spread throughout uh, Europe at that stage. Um, but it was still very much, I mean, it was still very much uh, associated with China and it originated in China. So people were quite concerned about that. Uh, I would say in quarantine or in self-isolation, I really have a lot more time to practice. I'm just at home all day, so I can practice. Um, it's different being, it's different practicing at home than in the monasteries. So it's hard to say really because I'm sort of back home, but now there's this virus situation. So it's like I'm in a familiar situation at home, but it's suddenly very different. So I'm sort of working out what is the new normal. In terms of my practice, I mean, I'd say it's, I'm quite happy with my practice. I get to practice more because I'm, other things come up. Um, yeah, like I might watch the news and get a bit anxious or a bit concerned about what's going on in the world. Um, and that, that's something to watch. I mentioned that a lot of Western meditation teachers and centers are now running online sittings and online retreats. So those are more opportunities to practice. Uh, and for me in Australia, um, those are opportunities to practice with teachers that I wouldn't otherwise get access to. Insights. I mean, I guess I sort of feel this was something that occurred to me when I was in Sagaing at the Chaswa retreat. I'd actually ordained as a novice monk for the duration of that retreat. So I feel like I got a sense more of, of being part of nature and anatta. Um, ordaining as a novice monk, so that, that actually also happened quite suddenly. I didn't go in planning to ordain. I didn't actually think I could because... Um, according to the venue, you're required to um, get permission from your parents, and that wasn't forthcoming. So I didn't actually realise I was going to ordain, and then I sort of arrived, and they said, oh, you can ordain as a novice monk, and then you won't need permission. So it's happened very suddenly and quickly. Um, and then I was the... So of the retreat of 28 Westerners, two women ordained, and another man and I ordained. And because I was the older man, I was considered the more senior monk. Um, so what that meant was I had, I would lead the processions to breakfast and lunch. Uh, I had to sit at the front of the Dhamma Hall. Um, after Dhamma talks, I would follow the procession of the teachers out of the Dhamma Hall and meant people would bow to me. Um, I, would, I guess I'm saying I was sort of suddenly thrust into this position where I was seen as this example of Buddhist tradition uh, in practice, and I really, I suddenly felt this responsibility and duty to uphold all these traditions and, and practices. And I think that really spurred this, you could say it's a realisation of anatta, or being part of nature. I didn't really, it was just sort of something that happened very suddenly. Um, I wouldn't say that I had it, I, it was something that I chose, but I was in this situation, and I suddenly had this responsibility. It wasn't like it wasn't something that I chose. It wasn't also something that I felt like I had control over. But somehow, I didn't really have a resistance to it either. It was just like, now I'm sort of part of this practice and people see me a certain way and I have to... It was sort of like, I people are suddenly holding me, holding me differently. And so I hold myself differently. Um, but it's not in a way that was a burden. It was more, this is just the nature of things. Um, and it was, yeah, through this experience that I sort of got more of an understanding of Anatra and um, seeing myself as part of nature. 
Um, and now that I'm back in Sydney, you know, I really do realise how interconnected we all are. Um, yeah, I said I'm not so worried about the virus or myself. Yeah, my, my concerns are more around not wanting other people to get ill and how others will deal with it. Um, and I was in a quarantine, I was quite strict with the measures and being very careful with hygiene. Um, again, not for myself, I mean, because I really don't want others to get ill. So there's a sense of how interconnected we all are. Um, you could say there's a sense of vulnerability. Uh, vulnerability is, is probably the wrong word, but it, it, it's like how open we are all are, how we're all sort of part of nature. You could say that we're vulnerable to nature, uh, but that's not exactly the right wording. We're all just a part of nature and it's, I guess it's all just stuff happening. And now, a message about these special coronavirus episodes. First, a caveat about our current podcast being produced during this expanding global pandemic. In this new age of social distancing, face-to-face interviews are of course no longer possible. An obvious consequence of this is technical. None of the guests we interview have access to a professional recording studio. Indeed, as some are living remotely in the Burmese countryside, they have little more than their phone's microphone to record and send messages. Our expert sound engineers have done their best to improve and enhance the quality, but there is a limit to even their magic. In a time when major network programs resort to home-recorded and mailed-in content, we are also trying to adjust to these new rules and limitations. So while we apologize for any difficulty you may experience as you listen to these episodes, we appreciate your understanding of the challenges we face in producing them. On another note, please keep in mind that the interviews on this episode were recorded at some time in the past, maybe just a few days to perhaps even more than a month ago. As a result, some of the factual details conveyed in these interviews may be outdated by the time you hear them. We hope you find some light and wisdom in the voices that follow. We're greatly appreciative for the time that all the guests generally provided to share their words and perspective. We wish all our listeners to stay safe and mentally sound and use this challenging experience to grow in the Dhamma. One of the beautiful things about Burmese monasteries is that everyone can practice selfless giving. I've seen poor families give just one spoonful of rice to a communal alms bowl, and I've seen still poor families wake up at five in the morning to collect flowers to offer to the Buddha shrine. As our Insight Myanmar podcast runs on the power of donation, we also greatly appreciate any amount of support to keep our engine running. If you'd like to give a monthly donation through Patreon, That continued support will allow us to continue making these episodes available to you. If even a small fraction of our listeners donated the equivalent of a cup of coffee as a monthly pledge, we could be funded well into the future. If your income is less stable, we greatly appreciate one-time donations as well of any amount. If you find the Dhamma interviews we are sharing of value and would like to support our mission, we welcome your contribution. You may give via Patreon at www.patreon.com dot com slash insight Myanmar, as well as PayPal at www.paypal.me slash insight Myanmar. In both cases, that's insight Myanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you are in Myanmar and would like to give a cash donation, please feel free to get in touch with us. You have been listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. 
We would appreciate it very much if you would be willing to rate, review, and or share this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. If you are interested, you can subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, please check out our website for a list of our complete episodes, including additional text, videos, and other information available at www.insightmyanmaronword.org. If you cannot find our feed on your podcast player, please let us know and we will ensure it can be offered there. There was certainly a lot to talk about in this episode, and we'd like to encourage listeners to keep the discussion going. You can make a post, suggest a guest, request specific questions, and join in on discussions on our Insight Myanmar podcast Facebook group. You are also most welcome to follow our Facebook and Instagram accounts by the same name. If you're not on Facebook, you can also message us directly at burmadama at gmail.com. That's one word, B-U-R-M-A-D-H-A-M-M-A at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to start up a discussion group on another platform, let us know and we can share that forum here. We would also like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible, especially our two sound engineers, Martin Combs and Tharng A. There's, of course, Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host. Ken Pransky helps with editing. Dragos Bandita and Andre Francois make our sketches. GPU does our Burmese translation. Herman Perez, Santiago Hedar, and Marisol do our Spanish translations. And a special Mongolian volunteer who was asked to remain anonymous does our social media templates. We'd also like to thank everyone who assisted us in arranging for the guests we have interviewed so far. And of course, we send a big thank you to the guests themselves for agreeing to come and share such powerful personal stories. Finally, we're immensely grateful for the donors who made this entire thing possible in the first place. We also remind our listeners that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own and not necessarily reflective of the host or other podcast contributors. Also, this recording is the exclusive right of Insight Myanmar podcast. It is meant for personal listening only and cannot be used without the express written permission of the podcast owner. This includes any video, audio, written transcript, or excerpt of any episode. That said, we are open for collaboration, so if you have a particular idea in mind for sharing any of our podcasts or podcast-related information, please feel free to contact us with your proposal. Finally, we welcome your contribution in any amount, denomination, or transfer method. You may give via Patreon at www.patreon.com slash insightmyanmar, via PayPal at www.paypal.me slash insightmyanmar, or by credit card by going to www.insightmyanmar.org slash donation. In all cases, that's Insight Myanmar one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you'd like to give especially to support our new run of coronavirus episodes, please go to the GoFundMe site and search for Insight Myanmar to find our campaign there. If you are in Myanmar and would like to give a cash donation, please feel free to get in touch with us. With that, thank you for listening, and we welcome back next show.